Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is DJ Patel. I'm a general partner at Great Point Ventures, former U.S. chief data scientist, and a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. It is an incredible pleasure to welcome Sunil Gupta back to the Commonwealth Club. Sunil is founding CEO of Rise, a healthcare startup that is now owned by Amazon, co-founder of the Gross National Happiness Center here in the United States. His work encompasses an extraordinary, incredible, extraordinary breadth of things uh, from not only talking to some of the most transformative people here around the, uh, in the country, around the world, to figure out what makes them tick how to discover simple shareable action habits that lift up our performance, deepen our sense of daily purpose. In addition to all that, Sunil is a visiting scholar at the Harvard Medical School, and his latest book, Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in Today in Everything You Do is a Practical Guide to Integrate Ambition, Work, and Well-Being to Create a Balanced, Joyous Life. Sunil, welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. Uh, I am so excited for this book. Uh, it, it was like a book that uh, I wish I had uh, many years ago, <laughs> as, as, as we've all kind of gone on various journeys together. Well, I was going to so- say, I was going to say, DJ, the one thing you forgot about, speaking of years ago, is that you know I slept on your couch years ago when I was trying to figure out my dharma. I don't know if you remember. Of course, I, I do I remember, remember this. this, right? And you and Devika at that point had you know, just gotten married. And so here I am like trying to get a job in Silicon Valley. And you and I had just met and both of you were kind enough to say, hey, when you're out there on this trip from the Midwest out here, like come sleep on our couch and like, like we'll, we'll show you around. And I, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to you for that. And I, I, I remember this too. You and I would take runs at that time. I was going to say, talking- I, I recall the run where you kicked my ass. Uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> just to be clear, that wouldn't happen anymore, but, but at that time, maybe. And, and I remember you and I having real conversations about life and career at that time. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having another one of those with you right now. Absolutely. So I'm so like, let's get into it because one of the first things here is this is a super different book than your first book, Backable. And that that first book is really a journey of you going through that phase of uh, becoming an entrepreneur. This is a phase of what you might call enlightenment. Hmm. And so I'm curious to start with, maybe take us on the journey of why this book from yeah. that kind of previous book, which I still is my one of my most, the books I give out the most often to new, new founders. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my last book was called Backable, and it was all about how do we inspire people to take a chance on us. Um, you know, one of the, one of the games my daughters and I play each morning, like we started doing this during the pandemic. And I always found that when my parents, my dad in particular would have like a little sort of like exchange we would have each morning that would kind of stick with me. And so I wanted to have like a little exchange myself with my daughters and I asked them, it's a little obnoxious. They, they kind of roll their eyes when I do it, but I asked them, Hey, what is the meaning of life? And they say to find your gift. And then I ask, well, what is the purpose of life? And they say to give it away. It's a quote from Picasso, my one of my favorites of all time, which is the meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is to give it away. Backable in a lot of ways was really focused on how do we give our gift away? You know, how, if you have an idea, if you have a concept, if you're working inside a company and you want to inspire other people to get behind it, how do you sort of share that in a way that sort of prompts people to want to be a part of something? But the more I kind of got into that, the more I realized that the first part, which is like, what is my gift? Who am I? You know, what, what do I, what do I want to share in the world was something that, you know, not only I, I found myself really kind of struggling with and trying to figure out, but so many people that I was talking to who I I think objectively were, were successful. Like if you looked at them on paper, you looked at their LinkedIn profiles, DJ, like they look like they're doing very well. But when I would start to really kind of dig into their careers, you'd often find this sort of sense of kind of malaise of like, hey, am I, am I really walking the right path here? And I felt like 
because I was asking that question and so many others were, I really felt like this is where I wanted to be spending my time. Well, tell us a little bit about about um, the word Dharma even, because yeah. Yeah, like, you know, I think most of us see it on, you know, the back of somebody's car bumper sticker, like <laughs> Dharma, Karma, right. these things, or you kind of affiliate it with like, oh, I'm in yoga or something. Yeah. But you're bringing a very different intentionality to the word, almost bringing it back to its roots. Maybe can you can you give us a sense of what what the, what is Dharma? Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that you're bringing up like sort of what it prompts for people as well, because one of the biggest decisions that I had to make with HarperCollins, who published this book, was do we even put the word Dharma on the cover? Because as soon as you do, it does kind of signify things to people, right? It could, it could, it could certainly come off as like a yoga meditation type of book, which it, it, it is certainly not intended to be. I mean, the idea behind Dharma is like, we all have an essence. We all have something inside of us that, that is aching in a lot of ways to be expressed, right? But the question really is, how do we express it when we have all these other things going on in our lives? The way Dharma really came to be was when, you know, you had, you had groups of people who were starting to get burnt out thousands of years ago. They were going through the first waves of kind of like exhaustion and burnout. And you were hearing this written about in, you know, Vedic texture, you know, tech, texts of people who were starting to go to the forest and basically escape what was happening in the real world. You know, India and South Asia was going through a golden time where we, you know, there was lots of development, there was lots of progress, but at the same time, you know, neighbors were having a tougher time, you know, getting to know one another, families were spending less time with one another. And so there was a real debate that was happening across the subcontinent of like, are we truly making progress here? Yes, huts are turning into homes, tattered sheets are giving way to nice stitched clothing, but like, are we actually happier as a result? And it created this big divide that, that actually is not that dissimilar to, I think, some of what we've seen over the past few years, where people are starting to disassociate from their work or they're quietly quitting and they're saying, you know what, I, I don't want to do this anymore. What ended up happening, you know, hundreds of years ago is that people went to the forest to meditate and to pray and, and to do yoga, but they kind of realized that they missed the, the the outside world. Like they missed what was happening with progress. They wanted to create, they wanted to develop, they wanted to be a part of it. They just simply didn't want to burn out. Right. And and out of sort of this tension of like, how do I how do I engage instead of sitting on a meditation cushion, how do I engage in what's happening in the real world? But at the same time, bring who I am to that in a way that has a lasting sense of happiness. That's really where Dharma, this body of philosophy called Dharma began to emerge, right? And so timely for, for the moment that we're in right now. You asked, you asked about the definition, you know, Dharma, Dharma is our essence. And when we're expressing that essence, we come alive in a brand new way. You know, we feel confident, we feel creative, we feel lit up. And when we're not, you know, we feel lost, we, we can feel depleted. And, and, I, and I think so many of us are feeling that way right now. The, again, the book is really, you know, not about just sort of the fact that you have a purpose and that, you know, you should go find your purpose. It's more about how do we start to align a little bit more of who we are with what we do each day? And how do we do that when we're overwhelmed? You know, when we have a really busy life, we're paying bills, we have back-to-back -back meetings, we have drop-offs for kids, a lot of us have aging parents. There's just so much going on right now. And sometimes the word purpose, just even the word purpose, like I talk about it in, in boardrooms, I talk about it in classrooms, and sometimes I'll like feel an eye roll like in the room, right? Because even the word purpose can sometimes feel like one more thing that we have to add to our to-do list, right? And we have like an impossibly long list to start with. And sometimes the word purpose will conjure up images of like quitting your job or like hiking in the Himalayas or, you know, moving to, moving to Florence and becoming a painter, right? And most of us don't have the ability to do that. So the question is, how do we start to take this notion of purpose and how do we start to align it a little bit more with what we do? And I think the beautiful thing about some of the principles in this book, the things that I've learned from you know, looking at modern day heroes, but also like tracing it back to the science and to the scriptures 
is that sometimes these little tiny gains can actually make a huge, huge difference in your life. Well, one of the things that I love is that the number of stories you tell in this from, you know, the modern day to recent history. I mean, you have even stuff about uh, Nikolai Tesla in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's some really fascinating, deep sort of, I did not know how that came about stories, Mm -hmm. but maybe to, 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 I think to, to put this in a little bit of context, I love this. Um, You actually posted on Instagram today about this, uh, this story about this law student. And maybe you could carry us, take us through that example, because I think it's probably one that many people who relate to of like, we've gone so far down the tracks in one way. What do we do? We're we're kind of locked in. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the one of the sort of you know ideas behind Dharma is that you know a lot of us sort of believe that our life is a map. You know, and ultimately what we we sort of lay out is we're going to go from one step to the next step to the next step, and it's kind of like once we've laid that out, we're sort of tracing down the map, right? And the scary moment can happen when we're sort of further down that path and we kind of realize like maybe that's not adding up for us anymore but then but then the hard thing is look there's so many there's so much sunk cost or there's so much that has been invested in this that it's scary to say let me let me adjust let me adjust courses right and you know the way that sort of dharma like you know when i was taught dharma one of the one of the main sort of principles is to the idea of seeing your life as a compass instead of a map Right. And that doesn't mean that you're living without intentionality. It means that you are sort of really kind of investing in each step. You're, you're with high intention, tuning into where you are right now and where you want to go and setting a very clear direction about where that is going to be. But then you're also taking these moments after you take each step to really tune back in to pull your compass back out of your pocket and say, all right, where am I now? Right. And in the case of the law student, you know, what ended up happening was that we had this conversation. It was a third year law student who came to me. And I, I think part of the reason that he came to me is because he had seen that I, as a law student myself, I'd gone to law school and I had taken the California bar and, and somehow passed that thing and, 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 you know, started to practice a little bit, but, but then kind of shifted course in my career. I went down much more DJ, like kind of your path a little bit. I was a product manager and I, and I started to really get involved in technology companies. And so he reached out to me basically saying, Hey, like, you know, I'm, I'm about to graduate, you know, this is my final year and I'm not feeling it. I don't, I don't feel right now like this is the right thing for me to do, but I don't know like how to call my parents. I don't, I don't know if it's even the right thing to do for me to sort of abandon this path that I've spent the past two and a half years investing in. It's been tuition. It's been, it's been time. It's been, it's been sacrifice. So, you know, what do I, what do I do and how do I sort of think about this? And, you know, really the framework that, that I kind of I introduced him to was, was sort of this, this idea of outer success and inner success. Right. And, and, you know, what I, what I wanted to be very clear about is like what outer success is, is, is it is status. It is achievement. It is wealth, right. And inner success, you can almost think of as like purpose and meaning and joy and some of these softer things that are very hard to measure, but I think all of us sort of feel a yearning for. And, and what I said to him is, look, I don't want to like be, I don't want to be so clear cut here to say you should not be a lawyer, right? All I want to say though, is that you, you can achieve a lot of outer success in your life without ever feeling a feeling of inner success, right? And that is kind of the myth that is that I think that one day we're going to get to this point where we have achieved enough status, enough wealth in our life that we're going to start to feel a sense of meaning on the inside. And, and, and if, you look at, if you look at sort of that, that point of view, it is, it is a traditionally sort of old school kind of point of view that it was shared for generations and generations. If you follow Viktor Frankl's work with Man's Search for Meaning, this is really what he was writing about near the end of his life, is that if you look at sort of our grandparents' generation, especially in the West, there was sort of this notion that if you earned enough wealth in your life, you would be able to create meaning right? Money would buy meaning. But we were starting to see a shift in this in the 1980s, where people who were graduating from school were starting to call BS on this. And they were saying, look, I kind of realized by looking at my parents' story that like, that's not really amounting to be the case. Because I know too many people who have a lot of money in their lives, 
but they haven't been able to sort of create that inner feeling of fulfillment and joy, right? And I think that that has continued on and on through Gen Z, through, you know, through, through millennials into Gen Z is like, now I think Gen Z is asking some of the tougher questions like early on, right? And I think like for your kids and my kids, DJ, I think they're basically saying like, look, we, we sort of know that we're about to enter a workforce where we don't know if healthcare is like a guarantee. We don't know if social security is a guarantee and we're living longer. And so we may end up working, you know, 60, 70 years in the workforce now, right? To ask the hard questions about wanting that to be meaningful, I think is a fair thing to do, like a really, really fair thing to do. And I think those are the questions he was asking as well. So ultimately the, the takeaway was, hey, look, you know, outer success and inner success, both are important. It's not to shame either one. To want nice things in your life, to want a nice car, a nice home, the point of Dharma isn't to shame that. But the point of Dharma really is, is to say, hey, outer success is not going to lead you to a feeling of inner success. Acknowledge that. Know that, right? But on the other hand, what I hope to, what I hope to show in the book is that there are plenty of examples of people who started with inner success started with things that really mattered to them. And, and when you do that, you, you just naturally bring a higher degree of energy. You have more creativity, right? Your harder work, right? The, all those things start to feel more natural to you. And those tend to be the ingredients that we look at when we traditionally look at outer success as well. One of the things I, I loved is um, in the book, you, you highlight this um, story um, uh, about how highlighting like, what's the thing that um, if you died, you'd have massive regret. I think that's the way you kind of said it versus the things that you're like, yeah, okay, I did those things. Yeah. But you also are very tactical in helping people in this book um, about, uh, about the Dharma deck and other mm -hmm. activities. So mm -hmm. maybe just take us a little bit on that, that one of how you have used the Dharma, uh, Dharma deck. And let me just pause it real quick before I tell the audience. Um, we got a bunch of great questions coming in. Uh, no surprise there. But, and so keep them coming in. I'll get to them in, in just a couple of minutes here. Cool, cool. Yeah, you know, so one of the things that I always found sort of intimidating about conversations about meaning and purpose, I mean, DJ, you and I have had these conversations before. And one of the things I find very intimidating about this, this, this thing called purpose is that, like, I have to go on this journey to go find it. But I have so much going on in my life right now, right? And duties. Duties. These are my duties, right? And and like duties, duties are the bills to pay. It's it's taking care of the kids. It's 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 dealing with all the other things we have going on in our lives. And then you have Dharma, right? And and sometimes it can seem like Dharma and duties just don't match. Like they can't they can't really come together. And one of the things that I feel like has really been liberating for me has been this idea that you your dharma is really already inside of you right it, it is it is something that is already there michelangelo would look at a block of marble and he would say the sculpture is already inside right all i have to do is chisel away the layers that are in its way and and i think dharma operates very much in the same way that there is something about you an essence right and but oftentimes we can lose touch with that essence it gets buried uh, and it gets buried under expectations. It gets buried under obviously other priorities, competing priorities. It can get buried under judgments, you know, from other people, but it can start, we can start to feel like we're losing touch with who we are. And in, and in the book, what I offer are these chisels, are these ways of sort of kind of starting to chisel back to who you are so that you can bring a little bit more of who you are to what you do, right? One, one example in the book that that I that I really love is is a story about a, a woman named Mila who's working inside a she's working inside a big company and she's a project manager and she's making pretty good money she's a mom and but but like she's not happy with her job you know like like a lot of us like she's feeling this sense of kind of malaise where she's kind of showing up each day and she's checking the boxes but she's not truly satisfied the thing that she realizes is that what she really wants is to be a teacher like that's that's her, that's her calling. She feels like that's the thing that would make her come alive. But as she starts to get into the practicalities of all that, it just doesn't add up, right? Like the idea of leaving the salary that her family needs, leaving the healthcare insurance her family needs to quit her job, to go back to school, get a teaching, it's just not working. So, you know, she feels trapped. Like I think a lot of us sometimes do we feel like trapped in this path that doesn't feel like our own. 
And then one day she sits down with a mentor of hers and she, her mentor asks her a very simple question, but it's profound, right? And this is one of the chisels. This is one of the, the ways of looking at it. And she says, okay, your dream job is to be a teacher. What is it specifically about being a teacher that captivates you? And as Mila starts to really get into that question, like below the surface, but below the title, below salary, below like, you know, having summer vacations off and gets into like the day to day of what it is she loves about being a teacher. What she starts to realize is that she loves helping people grow, right? That, that, that's her essence. Her essence is that she loves to help people grow. And yes, teaching was one way to express that essence, but there were many others as well. You know, she there, there were there were, she could she could really take a step up and become a manager and start developing the people around her. She could make a lateral shift into HR. What ended up happening was she ended up making a pretty small change to a training role inside her own department. And when she did that, everything really changed for her. Like she started to wake up with a lot more enthusiasm and energy. She became a rising star in the company. Her, hus her husband noticed. Their, her kids saw their mother come alive. The myth that I think this book is really trying to dispel is that sometimes we have to abandon our life in order to transform the way that we live. And oftentimes our dharma is really right within our reach. You, I know you asked about the dharma deck, but I'm going to pause there. I'm going to pause there and then we'll, and then we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment if you want still. Yeah, I, actually, um, I think this is going to get to the dharma deck because a bunch of the questions that are coming in is really about, you know, mentorship or how do I help unlock the Dharma of my kids? How yeah. do I expose this to my kids? If you're in the workforce, one of the things that's coming in is, uh, you know, how do I do this without making it feel too woo-woo? Totally. <laughs> and, and how do you be helpful around this? Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, so with, with, with kids, you know, there's a story I tell in the book about a friend of mine who who was like, "Look, I know you're writing this book, and uh, you know my my son right now is graduating from he's he's graduating from his program at university, and he feels pretty lost right now. Like he doesn't quite know what to do. And when I jumped on a, a Zoom with him, one of the things he said to me was like, "I really want to go work at this like consulting firm, but this consulting firm is like you know it's it's an accounting consulting firm. I have my hope set up on it. It's based in Chicago." But it's really hard to get into, right? I have friends who did better than me in school that graduated last year, and I don't know if they're going to be able to really make it. Like they didn't get in, so I'm not sure if I'm going to get in. And you know, we really started to kind of dig into like what it is that he loved, like what is it that he loved to do. And one of the ways that we did that was by asking, like, if you like, what would you give away? What would you do for free? You know, like if you weren't paid, if you weren't compensated, what's that thing that you would have to do no matter what? And as we were starting to have this conversation, one of the things that came out is that he was volunteering at this small business opportunity program on campus. And it wasn't just volunteering as like a resume sort of thing, like the number of hours he was putting into it. I realized like this, this guy like really likes working with small businesses. And so I asked him like, why? What's, what's that all about? And through these conversations, what I started to realize is that like his uncle had owned a small business and was like, you know, really good at what he did, but he was really bad at the, at the finances behind the business. And ultimately the business shut down and his uncle became very depressed. He sort of fell off the grid. And it was one of those moments where this kid Levi was like, look, you know, like that story always stuck with me. And like, I felt like if I could help people who were like my uncle, then I would like to do that. And it was, again, through these conversations of like, what would you do for free? Because he was doing it for free, that he realized how much passion he had for working with small businesses. And it was interesting because the consulting firm he was talking about joining, they focused on like the, the big, the big people, right? It was the big, it was the big corporations that they would be helping. But it was a subtle shift of, oh my gosh, like I really, I really, that's the thing that I would continue to do for free. Then once he kind of reoriented to that, a lot of a lot opened up for him, right? It started to shift his his direction. So I know it sounds like a little bit of a naive question sometimes, right? But it's an important one, which is what would I do for free? And again, it's not because like you're, you want to go work without compensation, but sometimes what happens is when we are trying to figure out what we want to do for a living, we're mixing in all these different factors, right? How is it going to look to other people? How much are we going to get paid? Is it going to fit my practical life? Oh, and by the way, is this something that I love? And we're trying to we're trying to sort of a mush 
all this stuff into a pot at one time. It can be helpful to isolate different variables, right? And one of the most helpful variables to isolate is what would I do if I wasn't compensated? Or what would I do if nobody, like nobody even knew what I did for a living, right? And you just, what you do is you just sort of take all those other variables away and you have a very clean look. It chisels away almost immediately into the center, into that sculpture. Then I think you can one by one start to layer in these other elements of, all right, well, how do I make a living out of this, right? How is it going to be something that maybe is going to fit, you know, the other people in my life I'm trying to make happy, like my parents, you know, like those are variables and I'm not saying you dismiss, but there are variables you can add in later on. How do you deal with this, this idea of finding who you are with the societal pressures of what society wants us? We're just entering season where all these kids are applying to colleges, watching them under pressure. Yeah. We're talking about this for the Commonwealth Club of, Cal- of California, you know, headquartered in San Francisco Bay Area, where, yeah. you know, the pressure to be a founder or to have your startup is huge. Uh, you know, like the, the, the law student example is, is a powerful one, but I think a lot of people are asking also, how do you get the courage to do this? Do you need a mentor? Do you, do you need somebody else? Do, like, what's your advice to those people? Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. I think that's the first thing I'll say. Like, it's not easy as somebody who like, I think naturally cares a lot about what other people think. Like it it is one of the things for me that's probably been the hardest thing for me to get over, which is that it's hard to get a clear look at your dharma when you are looking at it through other people's eyes, right? When you're looking at how, how you express your dharma is going to appear in the eyes of others, it's very hard to get a clean look yourself. And that's, that's probably for me when it been, probably been the biggest, I think, distortion um, where, where I was never sort of being completely true to myself. Um, you know, I, I think that what has been inspiring for me is to see how many stories there are of people who have taken that leap and, and ultimately went through, I think, probably a bit of a dip of people saying, well, that's strange. That's a strange thing. Like even right now, DJ, when we open up this conversation, it was like, hey, you wrote a book about backable and it was about people raising money. Now you're writing a book about Dharma. Like what, where, does that, where does that sort of add up? And, and I, I think that's, that, that, again, for me, comes back to the compass versus the map, which is that oftentimes we, we want to sort of draw a map of our lives that, that seems very linear, right? One thing has sort of built on top of another, and we can tell a really clean story about why one dot connected to another. You know, it's funny, I, I would always look at like Steve Jobs's sort of, we can't connect the dots looking forward. We can only connect it looking backward. I always saw that as a very sort of like businessy sort of thing, like, you know, something that you would tell like a product management team. And realize now, like later on, how important that is as a philosophy for life, right? Which is that we try as hard as we can sometimes to to sort of have a linear path that really kind of makes sense. But oftentimes it won't, right? And oftentimes we feel drawn to something that doesn't necessarily trace perfectly to something that we've done in the past. And I think this idea of liberating ourselves from that is really, really important. And you have a lot of people who have come around to that idea, right? I mean, John Stewart, for example, he's the comedian, you know, he's like, you know, what I've learned is that I want to fail at a variety of things in my life, right? Like I might be known as a comedian, but I, I want to go out and I want to try a lot of things that are really pulling at my heart. And even if I fail at those, at those things, what I want to sort of end up with is this collection of experiences of knowing that I've tried these different things. And I think when you start to sort of, you know, get yourself into that mindset, it can be, it can be very liberating. One, again, one of the things that really helps are the stories of other people who have done it, you know, and, and what I hope this book really is, even though we are at the Commonwealth of California, we do have a lot of people who are incredibly high performers. We have great stories of people who, who achieved at like the top of their game in different industries. But I think we also have the stories of plumbers and nurses and first responders and, and people who were really strapped, like in a really hard position, and they still decided to take the leap. 
Like they still decided to go do something. And the way they did that was not necessarily by like ripping off the bandaid and blowing up their life, but they started to make little adjustments, like little things. Right. And, and, and these little things are things that you can put into practice. You know, the, the, I think you call them micro contracts, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that idea? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so one of the things that I realized that I think takes us out of our Dharma is this idea of constantly sort of scanning for what's the next best opportunity, right? One of the things I think like our, our mutual friend Reed Hoffman talked about is like, we're sort of set up in a world right now where people are kind of always one foot in, one foot out, right? Like even if you're a top performing employee, you're probably scanning to a certain degree, like what's happening at the, what's happening in the market, right? And I think that that effect is getting more pronounced. Like for those of us who are leading teams, like it's pretty obvious, right? It, it, within a few months in a new job, about the stat is somewhere around 60 to 70% are starting to kind of think about what's next, right? After just a few months in a new role, right? So it, it sets in very quickly. But the problem with that is that if you are kind of one foot in, one foot out like that, it's very, very hard to know if the thing that you decided to do is actually right for you. You, you don't, it's, it's hard to get perfect information or good information about like, is this role good for me if, I, if I'm not investing in it fully? But at the same time, I think people are afraid naturally of, of over committing to something, right? They want to have flexibility and they want to have openness towards their life. And so one of the things that I learned by watching other people, I think, who live their dharma really well was that they set up these what I call tiny contracts. And these are like binding agreements that you make with yourself to be all in on a course of action for a fixed period of time, right? So like for me, for example, writing a book I am the biggest procrastinator and I'm terrible. Like I'm terrible sometimes at like really sticking to something. And, you know, for me, the way that I was able to write books is by basically setting a tiny contract. I, I would say for the next nine months, I am not going to allow myself out of the box on this one. No matter how frustrating it gets, no matter how, like how much I really want to quit, I'm going to, I'm going to put an X on a calendar and I'm going to say for the next nine months, I'm committing myself to this process. And after nine months, I'm, I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to allow myself to take a step back and say, hey, if it's no longer the right thing, then I will allow myself to go do something different, right? But if, if instead I sort of did what I used to do, which is like, you know, not have a contract with myself and just be in this course of action, what I would often find is I would get to this point of frustration or I would have a, I would have a bad set of few days and I would get so frustrated that I'd be like, you know what, screw it, I'm, I'm done. Right, I'm done with this, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start looking for something else. So these tiny contracts can be very, very helpful in our lives, whether it's taking on a new job or whether it's doing something on the side to say, what am I committing to right now? How much time am I going to commit to doing this? And find something that's in your comfort zone. Don't, don't necessarily have that time span be something that you can't commit to. Like it's something that's really reasonable for the next six months or for the next year. I'm going to go all in on this. And then after that, after that year is up or that time period is up, I'm going to set a deliberate, what I call in the book, a checkpoint, right? Where I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to take some quiet time and I'm going to reevaluate whether I want to renew that contract or do I want to go do something different? This is a, a please keep those questions coming in. These are some fantastic questions. Uh, one of the things you also talk about is taking time for yourself, a, 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 a Dharma date. What, <laughs> what is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Dharma to me is very much like having a relationship with a loved one. Like it, to me, it may sound hokey, but like I've realized how much, how many similarities I have for me, my, my Dharma is storytelling, right? I, I, I like, like I love to tell stories, but the reality is that like, I also have like, you know, I have, a, I have kids, I have, I have like full-time work. I have other stuff that just sometimes doesn't have anything to do with storytelling, right? But the way that I sort of see this essence of mine, this dharma of mine is very much how I see this relationship with like my relationship with my wife, which is that we're not spending every minute of every day with each other. We're not even spending every hour of every day with each other. We're like, we're like, we're literally spending at times minutes, like at 630 in the morning on a weekday, a school day, like my house goes freaking berserk, right? Like the kids are up and like, they're shouting, they're screaming, like, and, and it's like, we know that at 6.30, like our relationship is no longer about like the two of us, right? 
But what we do do is that we try to make every day like time for coffee between 6.15 and about 6.30. We will sit down together. We will put our phones away and we will have like 15 minutes of just connected time. And Lena and I will, will talk. We'll like, we'll, we'll sip on coffee and we'll just talk. And it's nice and we get to look into each other's eyes and we get to connect with each other on an, like on an emotional level. And then, and then the time is up. But the thing that I would say about that is like that 15 minutes is the touchstone of our relationship. It is the bedrock. And sometimes that's all you really need is like making sure that you're having that time with your dharma, right? I, I went and spent time when I was doing my search, when I, when I sort of still kind of thought that like finding your dharma was, was something that you did outside of you. I was traveling around the world and I, you know, I was in Bhutan and I, and I went to go you know, stay at a, at a Buddhist monastery. And, and I realized that like, you know, these monks, I, I imagined that they were spending like all their days contemplating and meditating. And what I realized is that they were actually spending relatively little of their day doing that, right? They're, they were meditating for a few hours, but most of their time was like working the field. Most of their time was spent with duties. It was, it was doing all the things that they needed to do in order to make the monastery operate. Contemplation and meditation was only a little part of that. And, and the lesson that I took away is, look, you can be fully committed to something, fully committed to something, but it is much, much better to be full-hearted with that thing than it is to be fully scheduled with that thing. Because right? we, we, we've all been, or at least I've been, and I know many others have too, been in situations where we've been with something where we're putting a lot of time in it, we're putting a lot of hours into it, but our heart's not really there. And on the other hand, we've, we've been in situations where maybe we've had one full-hearted hour. We've been able to sit down with something and really give it everything that we have, and like emotionally, and it has produced even better results. Like I think the buzzword right now in, in, in work, you know, like for the past few years, has been engagement, right? For those of us who are leading teams or, or dealing with like workforce issues, it's like how do like how, what do we think about engagement of our of our teams? And sometimes I think we make the mistake of thinking about engagement as the number of hours that we're bringing towards a task. But I don't, I don't think engagement is about the number of hours as much as it is about the quality of energy that we can bring to each one of those hours. Well, let's talk about that, that angle because we're in such a, a transformational time as people are trying to think about bringing people back to work, career. Many people haven't even met their team ever. They don't know each other on this, this deeper level. As a leader, what's your advice for people to help unlock their, their team members dharma and make sure that they're aligned yeah i mean one, one of the things i think that really takes us out of our dharma which is like worth just kind of bringing to the forefront here is exhaustion and, and i think people are exhausted right now like there's just no there's no way around that we're, i think we're in an exhaustion epidemic i think that like it's been there even before covid but it's more pronounced now i think I, I, I go around, you know, I go around the world and I study different teams and I study different leaders and exhaustion is almost always the thing that everybody says. And by the way, it's people who you wouldn't think are exhausted because they come across as high energy, right? But they're just like internally, they're, they're, they're not feeling it. And so I think that's one thing for us to acknowledge right now is that people are really tired, right? Like we call it burnout. We call it a lot, a lot of things, but like just generally people are tired right now. And I, and I think that one of the things that I've realized is if you look at people who fizzle out in their careers, you know, people who had high potential, but they didn't quite reach it. It's not just that they've run out of time or, or talent. What I think often happens is they run out of energy right? they just simply don't have enough gas in the tank. Right. And if you don't have enough gas in the tank, you might have like the best idea. You might have the best intentions. You might have great goals, but you're not going to reach your potential. And so I think one of the things that we as leaders need to start thinking about is not just how we manage time, but it's how we manage energy, right? And, and that is a whole new, that is a whole new body of work. Like you know, I went to business school and, and, and I, I didn't, I didn't learn anything about that. I learned about Gantt charts. I learned about project management, but I didn't learn anything about like people's energy, right? And if you think about sort of like what that means, it really means tuning in to your people at a, at a level that has deeper, that has less to do with what they say and in a lot of ways, like how they're saying it, Right. Because oftentimes we, we sort of like, we are, even you and I right now talking, DJ, we're, we're both information and energy. Like you're picking up the words that are coming out of my mouth, but you're also like at a very natural level picking up like how I'm saying it. But oftentimes we tend to tune that out and focus more on the words, right? It's, it's kind of, the, it's like, it's like the, you know, people who, who like 
talk with an accent, don't think with an accent, right? Like it's, my mom would always tell me that. She's like, you know, you can't, like, I get to, like my mom would always say, I get dismissed at work because I talk with an accent. But just because I talk with an accent doesn't mean I think with an accent. And it's like people, we, we tend to sort of focus on the words, but what we need to be focusing on is that deeper level, right? And I think as leaders, that's something that we need more than ever before. But the other thing that I would say is like, we're, I think we're over-relying on vacations as an instrument for dealing with burnout. But if we look at the data, like, inst- I mean, vacations are great. Like they're great. They're great ways to see the world. They're great way to reconnect with, with loved ones, but as an instrument for burnout, they're not as effective as, as I think we make them out to be. A lot of people report feeling more stressed out one week after vacation than they did one week before. Right. So it's great while you're sitting on the beach and, but it's not so great when you have to come back to this backlog. And so, and the, the point is that if you look at sort of top performers and the way they behave, they're not waiting for vacations or long breaks in order to restore and recover. In fact, like the average high performer is taking multiple breaks, about eight breaks every single day. And that's across business, that's across art, that's across music, eight breaks every single day, which like I know sounds really extraordinary, right? Like given the world we live in, like we're, we're, we're kind of like clicking off of one link, clicking on the other, or we're hustling around if we're back in person. And it always sort of feels like every time we're ready for the next thing, we're already late for it, right? So, but one of the ways in the book that I really talk about kind of bringing this into our lives in a really simple way is what I call the 55-5 model. 55-5, which is that for every 55 minutes of work, whenever possible, not always possible, whenever possible, you're taking five minutes of focused, deliberate rest. Right? And, and that's not our Zoom world where we go and then we have to try to figure out how to get a bathroom break every fourth meeting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, if you're scheduling a six, if you're scheduling a meeting, like consider scheduling a 55 minute meeting. Right. And as a leader, letting your team know that this five minutes, I'm going to go take a walk. Right. I'm actually, I'm going to go do push-ups. I'm going to go do some, setting the example of, of how we start to use these five minutes is really, really important because typically what ends up happening is if you get a couple minutes, even if a meeting does end up early, you go straight to your to-do list and you try to knock off as much as you can. We're very much stuck right now in a time optimization world. We're trying to optimize as much as we can for time, but what we're losing is energy right? And it's just not working anymore. So if we as leaders can start to kind of reset that to, hey, this recovery, these little recoveries, let's stop, let's stop looking at them as rewards for what we have just done. Let's start looking for, at them as preparation for what we are about to do. Because what the science tells us is, is that, yet yeah, while you might be shrinking your hour from 60 minutes to 55 minutes, those five minutes are actually going to make the other 55 minutes far more productive, far more energetic, far more creative, right? And, and that doesn't just have effects on you and your performance. It has effects on everybody else, right? Like you show up to a screen and you feel rested. It, 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 has, it has cascading effects for the people around you, right? So I think that's one of the things that we can start to do as leaders is we can stop looking just as like information, but really energy. Because if, if like if you don't have energy, it 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 really doesn't even matter to have conversations. I love that. I, it's funny, you know, that you bring it up that way because one of the first things I always do in a reference call for somebody is um, I ask them what gives them energy, what takes away their mm-hmm. energy, I and I that. ask them the same question in the in their interview process. And so I'm trying to make sure the team has a good understanding of tasks that give them energy and take away their energy. And so, you know, do you share that? Do you share that with the other, like, is that something that ends up getting visible for everybody around you so that I'm aware for other team members, what gives them energy and takes away their energy? um, Yes and no, because uh, I I don't know if there's a great way to do it, honestly, overall. Yeah. Um, I, I think part of it's, I'm acting a little bit as conductor to make that happen. Um, but you raise a very fair point on this of like, how do we expose this and make people comfortable about it? Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I've been doing, you know, I, I go around now and talk about topics like Dharma to different audiences. And, and one of the things that like, when I'm, t- when I'm meeting with companies, I'll, I'll do a very simple activity where we pop into a spreadsheet together, like just a Google doc. And what I'll ask people to do anonymously is to say, uh, what is the answer? How would you fill in the, I need help with blank, right? So pick like, pick a row in, in like, well, in column A, 
pick a row and populate one cell with I need help with blank. And it could be personal, it could be professional, right? So, you know, I need help with getting better sleep. I need help with dealing with having a difficult conversation at home to I need help like right now, like like managing my time, right? Like it, it can be anything, right? And then what I ask everybody else to do, and again, this is anonymous, is if you agree or if you can relate to that problem, just write your name in next to it, right? Just jot your name down next to it. And over the course of a few minutes, what ends up happening is like this spreadsheet is <laughs> populated, right? It just fills in, right? And the 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 effect of it is sort of, I think, twofold. Number one is like, you've got people now on your team that you can reach out to and be like, hey, you know, DJ, like I saw you have an issue with like a kid at home as well. Love to like chat with you about it. So there's, a, there's like a, there's a connective tissue that gets built. But I think, but I think even more importantly is like, somehow it can, it can feel like the problems that we're going through are our own, right? And, 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 and I think at an intellectual level, we know that's not true. But if you look at like Vivek Murthy's research on loneliness and everything that's coming out right now, that's a big part of it, which is real, like feeling like even though we're going through something that is hard, that, that is difficult in and of itself. Feeling like we are the only ones going through that can be one of the most lonely things that we that we have going on in our head as you're dealing with something that somehow other people aren't dealing with. And just to see that the fact that like other people are are, are going through that as well, I think makes a huge, huge difference. So I anyway, I thought about that when you when you were talking about like what what takes away my energy. It would be very interesting for me to see a team that kind of like started to say, oh yeah, yeah, me too. Like I hate, I hate when that happens or I love when this happens. Yeah, no, it's a great one. Well, it, it, it teeing this up. Um, well, let me just get back to some of the questions here sure. because there's, there's been so many great ones. You know, one of them here is you've interviewed so many uh, people. Is there someone alive or not that you would like to gain their insight? And what would you ask them? Hmm. Oh my I mean, God. It's, I'll add a little context because you even have a Gandhi story in <laughs> here that that is close to. I don't want to give away, give it away because people should read the book, but it's very close. To, it's it's a personal story even there. Yeah. So you have this wide ranging. So who would who would be that person? So I mean, Gandhi Gandhi would certainly be one of them. But you know, I, I think the person who really comes to mind is Bob Marley. Bob Marley. Um, Bob Marley. To me, yeah, okay. So a couple things about Bob Marley. Number one is like. There, there's a whole chapter in the book that is dedicated to this idea of play, right? And play and work being these two very, very different worlds, right? We work hard, we play hard. That's kind of how we've been sort of conditioned. And I think we've also been conditioned to draw these really, really bright lines in between work and play. And I think Bob Marley was a big proponent of work is play and play is work. And I can blur the lines in between. And people will look at Bob Marley, like a lot, some, some people might look at Bob Marley, like, of course, I mean, he was a, he was a, he was a reggae musician and, and work and play, like kind of fit together. And you have a certain image of, of him. But what I think was really important about Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, the, the, the author and researcher behind Flow, was he very much felt this way as well. Right. And all he did is he looked at sort of top performers for a living and he wanted to understand, like, what were the habits that really brought them to the, the, the elevation of their game? And ultimately, what he found is that there were people who skewed, you know, he felt like there were two sort of pre predominant personality types. And one was the, the exotelic personality and one was the autotelic personality. And the exotelic personality was the person who was really, really goal driven. Right. I need to hit this milestone. I'm very, very clear about what I want to do. I'm going to go hit it every morning. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to look at that goal. That's the X that I want to hit. Then you have the autotelic person who, in a lot of ways, sort of focus much more on the process behind it. Right. But, but even more importantly than focusing on the process, they were, in, they were somehow finding ways to experience joy in that process, finding ways to actually like what they were doing. Right. And that's where they, that's where they sort of dedicated their energy. And we aren't one or the other. We're not like fully exotelic or fully autotelic, but we do tend to lean one way or the other. The thing that Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi started to dispel, the myth that he started to dispel was that when we look at the top performers in business, in everything, in investing in everything, we are going to be finding people who are predominantly exotelic. We're going to be finding people who are completely clear about their goal, about their vision, because like that's what we've been conditioned to do. What he found in, was that was there were many, many people 
that were that were autotelic as well. It's not that there were not exotelic people. Of course, that's a great way. Like, of course, that's a path to success is to be completely like like fanatic about your goal. But the point he was trying to make is there was also these these autotelic people who were reaching the very very top of their game, and they were actually having a lot of fun doing it. Like, if you look at their fulfillment, you look at their joy, their happiness. They just tended to be happier people, right? And what I what I love the most about that is that like when I started to dig more into these stories, not just of people like Bob Marley, but people like Phil Jackson and people people who people who were able to sort of reach the top of their game, they were starting to blur this line between work and play. They were starting to feel like work and play could actually be these things that fueled one another rather than opposed one another or or have to be divided. And when they when that started to happen, they started to come alive in a new way. So if I was sitting down with Bob Marley, I would be like, "Hey, man, like, tell me, like, tell me more about this this like concept that my ancestors called Lila, which means high play, and tell me how you brought that into your life." No. Um, another question along this direction that people are asking about is, "What's a story that didn't get to make it in the book?" <laughs> great question. Um, like, great, great question. Okay. Um, all right. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Um, one of the, the, I can't believe I'm even saying this. Uh, <laughs> so one of the um, concepts behind sort of coming back to who you are, right? I One of the ways of doing that, I believe, is by asking yourself, what is it that makes you jealous? Right? Which like jealousy is a bad word, right? Like, what are you talking about? But I, I believe jealousy can actually be a very clear vision sometimes into what it is that we want. It can, it, can, it can come with a lot of bad emotion behind it, but it can also come with some really good signal behind it. And I find that oftentimes if you can get beneath the layers of, oh, they're driving a nice car or they're doing the nice, but you really get into like, what is it though specifically like that, you, that, that makes you jealous? So what is it about their life? And you can you can you do that with an objective lens without the sort of emotional kind of turmoil that comes with that. It can start to tell you a little bit more about yourself. For me, one of those people who always made me jealous is Jay Shetty. And Jay Shetty is like the guy who wrote Think Like a Monk, and he's got like this massive, massive following on Instagram. And like, and, and it was one of those things where he's a good looking, he's a really good looking Indian guy, and my mother-in-law is infatuated with him. And I was just like, he always pissed me off because it was like, it was like, I, I, I always found myself getting really jealous about his work and I've interviewed Jay now and, and like we've sat down, but like there was a time where like, I didn't, I couldn't stand Jay Shetty. But when I started to kind of like put my emotions aside, I started to kind of think about like, what is it specifically though? Like I go beneath the follower count and all that kind of stuff. And I go to like, what is it really though? That makes me jealous. What I started to realize is like, he was doing this work around like East meets West. Like he was bringing these Eastern sort of philosophies to a Western audience and he was doing it relatively well. Like people, people were really starting to absorb his work. A lot of people who would never have like thought about like, you know, Dharma or anything of that vein we're starting to engage with that. And, and I realized that like ultimately it was that work. It was his su- success in that field that was actually making me jealous. And as I started to kind of come to terms with that, I realized like, hey, that's a pretty clear prism for me. Like that's a pretty, that's, that's a good data point for me to keep in mind about what's in my own essence. I can't believe, like I literally cannot believe I just like share that story because it was like one of those things I wrote out and I'm like, I cannot I cannot like tell the world that I was jealous of Jay Shetty. I just can't stomach that. But here I am here with the well, Commonwealth Capital of California. Lucas, I, I, I have to ask you, we only have 10 minutes left and there's a whole slew more questions. But I wanted to ask you because this book is really personal. You, you get really to some very deep things, such as being, you know, the only brown kid in Detroit. Uh, Indian, South, Southeast Asian uh, brown kid, and some of the yeah. racism you experience, some of the other things, the imposter syndrome uh, of, of this. But I also noticed there's a clear thread of these stories about gratitude mm. and saying thank you to a lot of people. Yeah. And I'm just curious if that was intentional through this and also how you got, how did you get so deep with yourself? Thanks for asking that, DJ. I mean, like, seriously, thanks for asking that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, 
there are things sometimes that we can say in writing that we can't necessarily say uh, in in person, and and, and it's not. I'm not. I'm not sure if that's a good thing, or, or but but I but I know that there were people in this book that I really wanted to speak to, and I wanted them to know how important they were to me, and I found myself writing things to them that I I have never told them in person. I I, I feel that way about my father. You know, oftentimes my father and I when we hang out. We're kind of like bickering, you know, and and, and but like or we're we're we're, we're sort of speaking in a way that that you know isn't capturing the emotion it's not if it if it was the last conversation that i was ever going to have with him it would certainly be very different than the way that i'm interacting with him right now and and of course i want to put myself in that place and i want to pretend like it's the last conversation because i know that that's the right thing to do and you never know he's 79 years old you never know like what's going to happen but at the same time i i struggle with that and i and i found writing to be a really like powerful way of, for me to, for me to truly kind of go there. And, and, you know, I, I think for, for me, there've been a couple of things that have been really important, um, for taking myself to that place. One of them is writing with your eyes closed. So when I write, when I, when I write my drafts and I'm, I'm, I'm at a, I'm at a computer, I'm actually, I'm actually closing my eyes and I'm just writing. And, and the reason for that is because when, when you write, what tends to happen is you have your writer and you have your editor sort of working at the same time, right? So as you're writing, you're actually reviewing those lines and you're starting to edit in your mind. And I, and I found myself when I'm in that mode to really be like trying to impress people, right? Rather than express, right? And I wanted to express instead of impress. And the only way that I knew how to do that was by turning off that part of me. And one of the most effective ways to do that was to just simply close my eyes. It's very powerful. Um, we have only a few minutes left, but let me get to this question here. Um, is there a habit of the people that you've interviewed, researched, uh, that you've tried to take away and said, ah, I want to try to implement that, and that's really stuck for you? Mm. Yeah, for sure. You know. Um, so one of the biggest, I think, things that I think I've had to learn how to work on is what in the book I call upeka. And upeka is comfort in the discomfort. How do, we, how do we not run away from discomfort, but how do we actually find comfort in the discomfort? Because, you know, just because you're working on something that matters to you, just because you're working on something that, that, that's high purpose – that doesn't all of a sudden make sh- the, the roads don't open up and all of a sudden like your your like your life is easy and in a lot of cases as soon as you find your purpose that's when things get hard because you care right and you're and you start to play at a higher level in some in some ways right and when you're playing at a higher level that's when the challenges start to come up like real challenges that you haven't faced before and if you're running away from them then you're also running away from your dharma right it's it's the it's the old saying you may have heard which is that difficult roads lead to very beautiful destinations but we have to find a way to to have comfort in that discomfort one of the ways that 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 i've seen other leaders do this is by being able to find that space between something that triggers or annoys them and the response that they have just like that space in between, Viktor Frankl, again, coming back to him, he called that space your freedom. So if your space is like this, and every time something triggers you or annoys you, you react, and that space is like this, you have very little freedom. But inch by inch, we can start to expand that, right? We can start to, we can start to expand that. And you know, one of the ways that, that, that I've seen other leaders do this is by having a home base, what I call a home base in the book, which is literally just after something like happens, rather than responding immediately, literally having a place that you can go, whether that be an image in your mind, it could be like, you know, a place you enjoyed as a kid. If you were by a lake, like literally having an image, oh, I'm going to go there now in my head. So for some, for other people, for me, it's physical. Like I will literally, if I'm, if I'm feeling really annoyed, like I will, I will always try to remember to just kind of put my hand on my heart for just a moment, right? And it, it's really simple. It's a really simple gesture. But what it does is it creates a transition in between that moment where I really want to respond and how I respond. And sometimes, like, I mean, I think we've all experienced this. Just a few seconds can make a huge, huge difference in the, in the compassion you have towards your child, 
in in the way that you talk to your partner. Like that, there there are so many mistakes that can happen, things you, you regret when that five seconds doesn't happen. And so, the flip side of it though is that when something good happens, sometimes we do take the pause when we shouldn't. When we should actually like react on it, act on it quickly. So, you know, the, the question was like a leader who I who I really admired and studied. What I went and studied uh, Ben and Jerry. You know, the maker like like Ben Cohen and, and and Jerry Greenfield, the guys who created Ben and Jerry's. And I went to their you know to their to their like you know environment in Vermont and and like watched them sort of like deal with like employees. I went to the factories with them and I asked Ben after a while. I'm like Ben like is there one like piece of advice that you would give leaders right now? Like what's one thing you've taken away over the past 50 years of being in this business? And he said, yeah, it's pretty simple. Catch people doing something right. Because oftentimes as leaders, what we're all, what we're kind of geared towards doing is like figuring out where the mistakes are. We're trying to catch people doing things wrong. Right. And because we're naturally trying to optimize and make things better, but we're, we're not as used to catching people doing something right. Right. And having like being as like vigilant about that as we are about the mistakes. And so one one visual I like to use now is like to have a longer fuse for like anger. Right. My job is to try to lengthen the fuse between like the point like where it's lit and the point the bomb goes off. I want to lengthen that fuse. But for kindness, I want to shorten the fuse. Like if, if I if I feel like calling a friend because I'm like I miss him, you know, and I haven't talked to him in years, I really try to shorten the fuse on that. And even if I'm going to get his voicemail, just leave him a nice message and just say, "Dude, I miss you. I, I I was thinking about you, and I just want to say hello." Because I realize I never did that. I would think about it, but my fuse was long for kindness. I would like put it in a backlog and it would never happen. If I, if my wife looks beautiful because the light is hitting her in a certain way and it's particularly like, I, I want to like, instead of like holding that thought, like Lena, like you look beautiful right now, right? And like trying to shorten that fuse for kindness, but again, lengthen it for, lengthen it for anger. So I want to close on, on this, um, this last part of how, uh, how do people balance like you know when you think about this be existing in the hardship and you talk about this also in the book about dealing with some of the racism mm -hmm. when do people need to raise their hand and say stop or boundaries mm -hmm. are being crossed or that the their rights their who they are their, their dharma is being impacted how do people recognize when it's not them that they need to chisel away, but they need to stop someone's behavior? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think right now, like we're at this moment, we need to we need to be changing behavior. We need to be raising our hands. We need to be doing everything we can. And at the same time, I think the thing that I've realized by like going deeper into people like you know Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Marion Edelman you know, people who really sort of led the charge on making those changes, what they all sort of came back to was this idea that like, we also have to find ways to fuel ourselves and find this comfort in the discomfort, because if we can't, then we can't raise our hands in the right way. We can't make change in the right way. I mean, you know, for, for Dr. King, for example, you know, like, w one of the things I, I always sort of come back to in, when I'm like talking about this book is like, he was very scared and he would talk about that often. Like when he was like, we know him as the guy who was like leading big marches and giving speeches to hundreds of thousands of people. But behind that, what's not sort of shown on film, when you hear other people who are close to him, they would talk about how scared he was. Like they would talk about how he would share his fears. And I think one of the, the, the biggest takeaways for me of the book is that you know, we try to, I think sometimes we are conditioned to wait until we have a certain level of courage in order to take action, right? In order to make a difference, in order to raise our hands. What, what I've learned about people who I think are truly in their dharma is they don't necessarily wait for courage in order to take action. They take action and they let courage catch up along the way. Because, you know, at, doubt is always going to be part of this equation. And, and, and you know, you're going you're to feel scared. If you're going after something that really matters to you, you will feel frightened, right? And, and it's, almost, it's almost part, it's table stakes for it. 
But the mistake we make is in trying to make that feeling go away before we actually move forward. And if we do that, then we're also we're always, I think, going to be playing a game of you know the game of someday rather than the game of now. Final question: if, You know, you think about all the people listening, all the people that are reading your book, all the work that you've done on happiness. If you had one ask of everyone out there, that would uh, start to change the the whole equation for for the world. What would it be? So my grandfather is the person who first taught me about Dharma. You know, when I was when I was seven years old, I would sit on a porch in New Delhi, and he would talk to me about this this way of of living that our our ancestors had practiced. And one of the most powerful images that he he gave me before he died was he believed that the world was like you know a sitar, a massive sitar with billions of strings. So you know, DJ, you are a string. I am a string. And anybody who's listening right now, we are all one string, right? And no one string is more important than the other string. We are all one string. Our job is to play our string. Our job is to learn how to play that string. And, and, the, and the beautiful thing about that is that when you can do that, when you start to really kind of tune into yourself and start to express yourself and play that string, not only does that make your string sound better, but it also harmonizes all the other strings. And I think that we, we, we sort of, when you, when you are in your dharma, when you are starting to come closer, you're starting to bring more alignment between who you are and what you do. You, without knowing it, you will start to rub off on the people around you. People will notice, right? And, and the, the obvious ones are your family, it's your kids, it's your coworkers. But I think it goes beyond that as well. And, and I think the thing that we sometimes sort of miss out on is when we think about impact, which I know is a word we use a lot here at Commonwealth Club, right? And we're trying to make an impact. We want to make an impact. Sometimes we miss the downstream impact we have. When you can impact one other person because they've seen you come alive a little bit more, they may come alive a little bit more. And because they came alive a little more, they may go do other things that you would never get to see. You don't have any visibility of, but you were you were part of you were part of what motivated and drove them. So let's let's all let's all find little ways, little ways to play our string. Couldn't ask for a better note to to end on, no pun intended. Uh Sunil, if people want to find you uh, to stay on top of what you're doing, what's the best way? Yeah, just come to my, you can come to my website. It's sunilgupta.com. But, you know, feel feel free to email me as well. It's just sunilgupta at gmail.com. There you go. All right. Uh, thanks. Our thanks to Sunil Gupta, author of Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for uh, Finding Success and Joy in Everything You Do. Uh, not only do we encourage everyone to pick up Sunil's new book, I definitely encourage you to pick up Sunil's uh, book at your local bookstore. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm DJ Patil. Thank you and take care. Thank you so much, Sunil. Thanks, DJ. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.